Howdy folks, welcome to our podcast, Life in the Saddle. This is Ben Longwell with True West Horsemanship. We're glad you're here. Join us as we share stories and adventures and interview extraordinary men and women in the equine and ranching industries to gain insight into horsemanship and life itself. It is our mission to help people and their horses better understand one another and achieve together that which they cannot do individually. Thanks for riding along with us. Alright everybody, thanks for tuning in today and uh, I'm pretty excited to catch up with Vicki Wilson. Uh, she's a well-known equestrian here in New Zealand and around the world and uh, I've had the privilege of rubbing shoulders with her off and on uh, over the years here, being here in New Zealand. So I sure appreciate you making some time, Vicki, for us to sit down and, and have a little visit and learn more about you and your, your, uh, your history, but also what you're up to these days. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Bet. You bet. So just for those who are tuning in who may not um, be familiar with your work, uh, maybe, maybe start with sort of what you, are, what you currently offer and, and what, you, what you do, and then we're going to dive into the history and, and ha- sort of how it all began. Okay, so we have a, a rather large setup here in uh, Hawke's Bay, New Zealand, and it's predominantly breeding show jumpers. Uh, that's my passion. Uh, so we have seven uh, warm blood stallions that we're currently using, and obviously uh, a very good broodmare herd. And the idea of those show jumpers, uh, breeding them for the future. Ideally, I'd like to take them back overseas and compete on the world stage at some point if it allows and and so with that then the breeding operation the show jumping competition side we also offer a breeding and rehab center here um so we have a lot of outside horses that come in for rehab that are injured or coming back from vets that sort of thing and then obviously breaking in starting young horses problem horses and then i've also stepped into the racehorse industry and trying to create uh, happy, healthy racehorses and see if what I do works. So, yeah, it, can, it kind of is a lot of things we do here and it, it keeps us busy. Absolutely. That sounds, that sounds like it would definitely keep you busy. Uh, and we'll get into more about that as we go along, I think, because, of course, uh, where you've come from sort of has shaped and given you those, uh, those opportunities. And, and um, yeah, so I don't want to spill the beans too much on on uh, on some of the things that I know you've been able to do, but maybe um, tell us a little bit about uh, your history and and where you got started with horses, how it all how it all began, and and um, and we'll go from there. Okay, well, I got a uh, my first pony uh, for my second birthday from my parents, uh, a very naughty little Shetland, and by the end, uh, just before my third birthday, I'd be cantering out on the farm behind my mum. So he was a, a very naughty pony. I think I fell off him more times than I stayed on him. Um, but it also was the start of my love for horses. And it kind of it grew through from the, the age of eight. We could never afford horses. There wasn't a lot of money growing up. And so it was always somebody's problem horse or reject or something that had an issue. And so it was learning to ride and to be able to problem solve, I guess it would. How do you fix or, or create a happy horse and get it going well? So the love for creating a, a horse that enjoyed its work. We loved riding bareback, galloping around the hills, uh, through the bush, playing cowboys and Indians as kids. Uh, it was all about adventures. It was all about having fun. And the love for the horse is always there. And I, I really appreciate um, and the support our parents gave us for that. Uh, it was amazing. Absolutely. And so, like, and that's never left. And so it's always been if we get a horse and there's something wrong with it, it's trying to eliminate the reason why, why does it have that problem? What's causing it? Is it nutritional, saddle fit, foot balance? Is it education, mental health? We, go, we try and go through every little thing and try and problem solve and what the issues are. Growing up, um, I did a little bit of everything, game, show jumping, a little bit of eventing. We gave everything a go, uh, showing. And it wasn't until I was 15 that somebody approached me and asked me uh, if they could sponsor me. Uh, if they'd said dressage, I would have gone dressage at that stage. And she said show jumping. So we got a very competitive pony and my love from the show jumping grew from there. 
Um, and I particularly love the show jumping because it's black and white. You and the horse are the one in the ring and you have to leave your best results in there. Uh, no judges influence, uh, which I've always appreciated. And all the way through, it's been about developing a happy horse. To me, the horse has to love what it does. It has to want to be in the ring for me. And so you de develop your feel, your passion, giving it a quality of life so that horse wants to be your partner, essentially. So Absolutely. Yeah, so, good. so when you're a kid and obviously dealing with, you know, a lot of difficult horses or horses that other, other kids or other people, um, you know, didn't want maybe, and, and those were the ones that your family could afford. Um, did you find like, were you part of pony club or did you find that there was, um, very much information available for you, uh, to, or even, even, uh, a, a group of, friends or, or other kids that were interested or, or had the same passion as you did or, or the level that you did? Not really, no. <laughs> we were on our own. And having no money, you were the kids that got laughed at because you had your secondhand jacket and your, your gear. Or I, The first few shows, I used to turn up to a bareback and ride. Um, I've got photos of me bareback riding to Pony Club, riding to shows, bareback at the shows, and everyone would laugh at you. And the only way you learnt was you broke the rules and you learnt very quickly not to do them again. Um, but I don't know, my passion never, ever got squashed. The love for it, I don't know, still to this day, it's what can we do for the horse? And the horse repays us unbelievably every single time. So to me, whether it's a racehorse, a show jumper, a client's horse that we're starting, how can we give it a quality life? It deserves that and more for what they do for us. Yeah. And so what was your first exposure to sort of the horsemanship world uh, where that wasn't much of a focus maybe in, in what you'd seen in pony club or, or show jumping or what up to that, up to a certain point? Uh, so growing up, we did some natural horsemanship courses. We got a wild um, Welsh cross stallion off a mountain that'd been running wild for six years. And uh, we bought it in the stockyards and got it home and it was so feral and wild. We obviously needed some help with it. I think I was uh, 10 at the time. And so mum contacted uh, a local person that did natural horsemanship and he had it for a week. And a week later, he rang us up and said, okay, you're ready to come in and have some lessons. And so that definitely uh, from the start then developed the feel and the understanding of what the horse needs. And obviously everyone means well buy their horse I understand that and and get that but then also to me my journey is never going to stop learning right. understand um so you always take what works from somebody and you leave stuff behind is how I I see it and I did a natural barefoot trimming course when I was 13 and the foot balance grew and it was lack of being able to afford a saddle fitter or lack of being able to afford a body worker or somebody to start your own horses that you kind of have to learn and sometimes the horses are the best educators and I was incredibly lucky that to me I haven't I just want to know. I want to learn. I want to know what works, what doesn't work, what the horse needs. And it's about developing that. And I'm not afraid of doing something wrong to learn something. Um, and so it was, it, as a kid, it was just about, to me, without getting results at a show, I couldn't afford to go to the next show. Uh, so unless I won my uh, entry fee money back, I could not afford to go to the next show. So how did I get these horses that were everybody's rejects? They were $200 horses, $400 horses, and I was competing against horses that had seven covers on and hoods on and beautifully schooled. And yet every weekend we managed to go out and win the champions and beat them. And so it was, to me it was about developing how does my horse love what it does? And we used to gallop around the hills. We used to have a lot of fun. Um, my very good horse when I was 12, I could whistle and call my horse uh, Casper, a very, very cool uh, horse we paid $200 for uh, that was dangerous. Uh, and it was understanding what that particular horse needed. But I could whistle and he would jump six fences to come um, see me. I could ride him with absolutely no gear on. I could jump gorse hedges and rabbit hutches and wheelbarrows because those were my jumps. <laughs> Um, but every weekend we went in that ring, he would reward me twofold. He was an amazing horse. And to me, it's about that relationship. And it was just learning that, developing that. 
Um, there were plenty of times where I came off him uh, learning to ride bridleless, but he was the best teacher I could have ever had. Um, and so it's learning what works. Um, there's always something we can learn from somebody. Um, and there's always stuff that I then leave behind as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you mentioned at 15, you started going more and more into the show jumping and got sponsored and stuff. So how did that sort of unfold through your later teenage years and, and early twenties or. Uh, so the show jumping, it grew from, so I had a very good competitive pony and one pony wasn't enough. So I very quickly, we had a, a second young pony. My mother bought unbroken, uh, my parents bought unbroken for me that for my birthday and. So I broke it in and we, uh, four years later, that Grand Prix. So it was about developing horses um, to be able to keep doing what I did. And I went on to hacks and my first two hacks was uh, Showtime Girl, who has become my top Grand Prix horse and is now the mother of um, many of my top young horses. Um, and she had just broken uh, the owner's back and bucking her off and I hopped on it and it tried to literally kill me every day for a year. Every single day I hopped on it, it would rear, it would bolt, it would lie down on me, it would get up and bolt, buck. I think she did everything she could in her power. <laughs> and looking back now, the horse was just sore. Um, and I could have, if I'd known what I know now, I could have helped her. Right. Uh, but developed a relationship. Um, and I've never had a horse as competitive or a will to win as that mare. And every time we went in that ring, she won a ribbon or she would die trying. Like she always, her heart was unbelievably huge. Despite everything going on, despite her size, uh, it was Grand Prix champion at so many, uh, for so many years. It was an amazing horse. So the show jumping, I absolutely love. And I still have a passion to want to go back overseas and continue with that. So it's, it's kind of never stopped that one. That's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome too, that you're able, you know, some people wouldn't look at it as an opportunity, but, um, you know, having to have those horses that other people had rejected or had hurt people and uh, the things that, uh, that it taught you and that you learned through the process, not even just the practical skills of, um, you know, the timing or how to, how to help a horse be happy, like you say, and, and, and making that connection with them. But even if you think about patience, or determination or some of those character qualities that, uh, again, an opportunity to develop that through those trying situations at times, I'm sure. Yeah, well, she taught me how to teach a horse to lie down because she used to lie down on me so many times uh, to get rid of me <laughs> when she didn't want to do something. And so you learned how to, okay, how do you make it work for you? How do you reward it so it becomes a, a wanted behavior rather than an unwanted behavior? So, no, it has been a, a, an amazing journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now um, following that time or at some point in there, you guys got involved, you and your sisters, with the wild horses here in New Zealand. And uh, yeah. that's been a big part of, of your journey as well. And, of course, that's where I got to meet you and, and your family um, quite a number of years ago now. So tell us a little bit about that and sort of how that transpired and, and, uh, and so forth. Yeah, so it started with a little pony called, I named, uh, we named Watch Me Move. So it was a little brown pony that I went to in the Waikato. It was for sale. It was $500. I turned up and it was skinny. It was tied with a tether rope and a round pen. And I went into the round pen and jumped straight over the fence. I said, okay, I'll buy it chucked it on the float, uh, took it home. Within a week, we'd started it, broken it in, we're riding it. Um, and it was a tough little pony, but it was forward thinking and it just, it had no idea about life. And at that stage, it was my season, last sister's last season in uh, Pony Grand Prix. So I had bought this little bay pony and then Viking came along, which is, uh, went on to win Pony of the Year for my sister and went on to compete as World Cup as a horse. So uh, but we had a very skinny, ugly uh, Pinto at the same time. And so uh, my sister said, I want to win Pony of the Year. And I said, okay, one of these two ponies will do that for you. And we trained them both and we said, hey, the Pinto's the better one, I believe. It's going to be the better horse and it will win you Pony of the Year now. 
And so she bought that pony. It was a client's horse, so I said bye. So she bought that pony. Within six weeks, she had won her first Grand Prix, went to win Pony of the Year that year. But at that same time, when we were there, her best friend, Tegan Newman, uh, was wanting something to Grand Prix as well and produce. And I said, hey, this little brown pony, this is your pony that's going to win your Pony of the Year. So um, Amanda got Viking, Tegan got Watch Me Move, both went on to win Pony of the Year. And following uh, Watch Me Move winning Pony of the Year, we were invited to the Caimano Rangers to see where he grew up. He was born in Neutro, so he was out of a wild mare that had been captured. Uh, so it was really neat to see where he'd come from. And Kelly, Amanda, my two sisters, we came up with the idea um, why don't we take some horses out of the muster? Why don't we document it and, and see what we could do with these wild horses? So it, it's been well documented now uh, through my sister's books and obviously we have a TV series, but our introduction to the wild horses was pretty incredible. We got to uh, be part of the muster process. So horses that were about to go off to the slaughter truck, um, 15-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old stallions and mares, we got sent home instead and so it was the most rewarding outstanding process I think we've ever done in our lives what we learned from those horses was unbelievable it was kind of our, our step in the door to education really understanding how horses worked what they needed mentally physically emotionally how did we um re return them back to their privileged life that they had before we put them on those stock trucks before we put them in our stockyards and their whole world crashed. And that was our goal. How do we give them back what they once had? And I believe the horses that came out uh, to us had a quality life and it's just been an ever-growing uh, learning process. Some of it's been very difficult, but the start of the Kaimanawas, uh, the TV series, document, oh, documentary, sorry, first, and the TV series the next season and... Yeah, the wild horses, I don't believe you could get a better teacher. You learn feel like you've never learned feel before. I, I would agree with that. <laughs> I would agree with that. That's uh, definitely an educational opportunity. And uh, I, I found it interesting in, in my experience as well, um, slightly different than the Mustangs in that, um, you know, they weren't kept in captivity at all here before. Uh, before yeah. we we started working with them and um whatever difference that might make to each individual i reckon there there's um there's some mustangs that uh um have adapted quite a lot to some different things um if they've been in captivity so yeah that's that was what we've always said from working with the kaimanoas the mustangs and the brumbies the mustangs are, are a lot easier because essentially we're taking them out of a prison cell they're used to the offences, they're used to your feed, they're seeing people, that sort of thing. It's just essentially to me, those horses are in prison and they've learned to adapt. So whatever you give that horse is an escape from that prison. Whatever work they come out of or learn or do is an escape. Whereas the New Zealand wild horses, we're removing them from freedom, from the best type of freedom, family environment, supportive group that you could ever want for. And so I believe that's incredibly hard on the New Zealand wild horse to adapt. Would agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. So um, after that, it seems like you um, obviously continued your work with the, the wild horses. And I think probably, you know, obviously the show jumping and stuff. What about the road to the horse? Tell us a little bit about that and how that transpired. Yeah, so road to the horse came about. So originally it was Kaimanawas and then we're like, okay, let's see what we can do with the Mustangs. Traveled That's America. Right. For, uh, that was an amazing experience. We traveled um, all the Western states in America, rodeos, ranches, national parks with our Mustangs. Came back and we said, okay, let's do the Brumbies. So we went to Australia, uh, got a wild Brumby each, uh, brought them back to New Zealand to train, and then we took them back to uh, Australia to compete. And while I was there, I was doing some clinics uh, at Equitana in Australia, and um, Dan James came up to me, Dan Steers and Dan James came up to me and said, would I be interested in a cult starting competition? I was like, sure, 
yep, always always up to give everything a go. Um, didn't hear anything again since, and I got back, and a couple of weeks later, I had a phone call saying, hi, I'm Tootie Bland, and I was like, hi. And it was kind of a somebody on the phone that expected you to know who they were, and I was like, oh, dear. So I jumped on Google quickly and went Tootie Bland, and she's like, I'm from Road to the Horse, and there was a pause, and I was like, yeah, yeah, wonderful play, uh, wonderful competition, da-da-da, and thank goodness for Google. Uh, <laughs> and she said, oh, I would like you to become a competitor. Uh, you've got 24 hours to decide. Um, and I had absolutely no idea what I was getting my, myself into. Absolutely no idea. We'd done a little cult starting competition here in New Zealand at Equidays um, two years before, which had been fun. And I was like, sure, we'll give it a go. I had no idea turning up over there, the, the, the scale of it or, or what was happening. But again, it was an opportunity to learn. To, to see and to see if I'm doing the right thing. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? How much more have I got to learn? And to me, that's never going to stop. So uh, Road to the Horse, our first year, um, was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, walk in, big stadium, 8,000 people, a horse that's come off a stock truck 13 from 13 hours away. It's been running in beautiful 25,000-acre pastures. Um, and it was an experience I'll never forget. I unfortunately dislocated my shoulder the very first day, um, so that kind of put a, a crash to things, but I adapted, and I think the way I adapted helped me to win that competition. So I called my little um, quarter horse Kentucky. Uh, obviously, we were competing in Kentucky, and the very first day, I think it was a uh, first time I went to sit on the horse, I just sat on him and one of the other competitors said uh, loud noise disturbance, which means they're going to whip crack. So I was like, okay, I'm going to hop off so I don't give him a fright. And as I went to hop off, I swung my uh, left shoulder into his neck and swung off and my shoulder dislocated. So it was a bit of a bit extreme and luckily we had an NBA uh, doctor on the grounds and he managed to clunk it back in and we were away. Um, but it meant I had to change what I was doing and how I would do things normally. And I gave that horse a lot more time on the ground than I would have. I spent more time building his confidence on the ground, getting him leading confidently because obviously I could not put any pressure on that arm. It was uh, excruciating pain. Uh, it, it was pretty bad. Um, but that little horse tried his heart out for me. It wasn't the bravest horse. Um, the, and looking back there were issues right from the very start about the little horse but he just whenever I got like the final round I don't believe I would ask any horse in a three-day environment to go and do an obstacle course and a competition like he did on that third day yeah. uh, so I adapted and I don't know if the judges would love me or hate me for it and Anytime he got stuck uh, in that competition, I actually hopped off and I invited him to go across with me rather than making him do it. And I won that little horse's heart that way, I believe. Um, and somehow I managed to win the judges on that day, but he finished that competition like a champion uh, and he's home in our paddock now in New Zealand. He is an awesome, awesome little dude. He gets ridden with no gear on a couple times a year. Unfortunately, uh, he has arthritis in his fetlocks which was hereditary on his uh, side of it. Um, we got him X-rayed as a three-year-old, which is a shame. But it is an awesome little horse. I can put anyone on him. He, You say down, it lies down. You say side, it side passes. You say back, it backs. It does everything, voice command, little bit of leg. He's like, okay, he's just the saint. He is the coolest horse. And so that first year at Road to the Horse, I learned a huge amount. Unbelievable. Um, I changed how I did things and it rewarded. And so ongoing from there, I, there was different things that I did. Um, and when I went back the second year, we changed things up again. So it's just, it's never ending how, uh, what we learn from these horses. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a, a willingness to adapt. And I mean, to adapt at all is, is difficult enough for some, for some people, but to adapt in that situation, in that environment, you know, with that kind of pressure and, 
and whatnot is pretty commendable, but it's like you say, it gives you an opportunity to learn and have the horses show us some, some things that we're going to miss otherwise. And, and we get sort of stuck. It's easy for humans, I think, to get stuck on doing things the way we've always done them or, or, you know, that have yielded results in the past. And we sometimes miss the opportunity to learn how there could be other ways to get maybe even better results. Yeah, it's, it's, we're trained to learn a method to in school with our horses, with our instructors, whoever we learn from, essentially everyone wants or needs a method because that's what works. Whereas I believe there is no method, uh, particularly with all the body work and the helping the sore horses. I believe, yes, there's parts of every method that works, but I'm not stuck on one method. And I think that really helps me with the horses and that if I get stuck, I have the ability to think outside the box and go, okay, what does this horse need? What have I missed? Uh, what have we not found to be able to help problem solve the issue that's going on with this particular horse? And it was the same, um, the road to the horse the second year, we got two horses to compete with. So all right. of a sudden you're trying to work with, two horses in the round pen at the same time, educating them, but knowing on that last day we had to take them out by themselves without their friend there to support them. So how did we give them enough confidence those first two days, an hour and a half, how did we give them enough confidence in that time to know that on that Sunday they had to go out into a foreign environment with a crazy Tutti Bland obstacle course um, and be able to probably that with just me and that particular horse without its friend that it's had the entire way through so like that's how I went into it going okay I have to educate this horse to have enough confidence um and so those first two days we played I had a play box which I wasn't allowed the third year um they said it wasn't fair and literally I wheeled it into the middle of the ring and we pulled out to toys we pulled out flags and balls and umbrellas and noodles and toy horses and everything and those horses became so curious that they I think they genuinely had fun they got to the competition on that last day in that obstacle course and every obstacle they were forward thinking they were brave and as we went around the obstacle course they just gained confidence so it's we've got we've always got an end goal we want with a horse whether it's to go in the competition and win that red ribbon or the blue ribbon and or to get the highest price for it, or whatever the end goal is. But how do we do it without trying to make that horse a machine? A machine and a method sells money. Yeah, My exactly. horse is <laughs> and, that, and that's the problem with the world and with how everyone thinks. This sport is a very expensive sport. Horses aren't cheap. <laughs> I've got too many of them to um, be able to do that, and I prefer to keep them than sell them to the majority of the the country because I don't believe very many others could give them the life that we give them here. And which is why I have so many. I think we have about 150 here with all the broodmares and young horses, but I'm not breeding them to sell either. We'll end up selling a couple of young ones. But to me, it's about giving them such a quality of life, such an education that no matter where they go, they're going to be successful. So our horses only go in an arena once a week. And they gallop around. We have a training track uh, for the racehorses. They, they gallop. They do work on that. They chase the sheep on the hills. They swim three days a week. So they go down to the river. They swim. They go on the obstacle course one day a week for, we call it their playtime. Um, so all of them, the Grand Prix stadiums, our young horses. To me, you have to love what you do. They have to have fun. They have to want to be there for us. The moment I'm forcing a horse to do something, I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm in the wrong game. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you, know, you know as well as anybody how easy it is for horses to get arena sour or drilled on when we do have those goals or competitive ambitions or whatever it is. And we just end up just doing too much of a good thing all the time with different disciplines or, or whatever our, our goal might be. And those horses uh, suffer for it, and so yeah, yeah. I, com I commend you on that. That's uh, that's cool to hear how much versatility and and um, variety you know that you have for those horses. And I liked what you said too about 
a method, you know, even within horsemanship that people, I say the same thing all the time. People are looking for a step-by-step -step deal, you know, something cookie cutter something, uh, you know, where they know step one, step two, step three. And, and I just, as I'm sure you have too, you know, you run into so many folks that get stuck somewhere in, in that process because horsemanship can't be boiled down to a curriculum or a program or a formula. And if we don't learn to think outside the box and, and listen to the horse and be able to adapt and fit that horse in that situation, then we can make a lot of things happen. Like we can, we can force a lot of stuff to happen, but it's not going to have the same effects. It's not going to have the same results even when it seems like it does on the outside. And then ultimately, like you say, they're not going to be happy in what they're doing. They're not going to be with us on that deal. Yeah, definitely. And don't get me wrong, I love to win. <laughs> that is 100% <laughs> I go, and I want to win. But at the same time, it's about developing them, educating them. And to me, it's about life. I couldn't cope being locked in an office. Yeah. But at the same time, Starting a horse in a brown pen and keeping a horse in a round pen is not my myself either. I've never started a horse in New Zealand in a round pen. Um, we start them outside in open space because, again, if I've done my job correctly, he's going to want to be with me. Um, and every horse, so we've got currently got 50 horses in work, and that's from our Grand Prix stallions. I can have seven stallions bareback all go down to the river with girls on as young as 12 we're all bareback and all seven stadiums can swim together they can all stand and cross ties together these are competition horses that they know their stadiums they're serving regularly yet to me they have a quality of life they enjoy what they do and so it's about i don't know how do we change the mentality of people that yes results are amazing and to me it used to be everything and it that's all that mattered was winning. Whereas now I'm quite happy to go in the ring and just do an education run for a young horse as well without that need to win. But if I've got a horse that's ready, 100% I'll give it a go. Um, but I've got horses that I've decided their heart's not in it enough. So they're kept for people to borrow to swim in the river. We lead the break-ins off them. They're the miles horses they're horses that love being at home they love doing obstacles the river the beach the fun stuff so they've got a job and a happy place here supporting our young horses educating our break-ins and actually i don't know being in that ring is not everything but a lot of people get stuck that horse has to go there but have they asked was its break-in a good break-in or was it destroyed in that break and we get so many here that have to come for restarting because they've been cooked or they haven't been educated enough and they haven't learned how to cope with pressure or is their body broken are they limited in what they actually physically can do is that why it's not wanting to go forward or it chucks in a buck and kicks out all those things are very important to me so yeah, we get a lot of uh, uh, redos. I've got one here currently that was quite dangerous his first few rides when it came back for restarting here. Um, it just didn't understand. It was sore in its body. It had had a lot of pressure put on it and the horse had learned to say no. And so to me, we want to miss those steps. Uh, having the horse sound in its body is incredibly important for me. We do a lot of body work on our horses. But then also we don't put those horses on the arena. They go on the uh, tracks, they go on the hills, they go to the river, they have fun for the first few weeks, and then we gradually introduce the other stuff for them. But to me, they're no different than uh, um, my little girl's currently, she's 14 months now, and it's no different than a little kid, 14 months, two and a half years old. Those kids, they have a two-minute attention span, and essentially if I'm starting a two- or three-year-old horse, they have a 15-minute brain where they, where they actually have a brain to be able to say, answer you and say, yes, I'll give it a go, I can try. And you get past that time frame and the brain just slows down and the ability to, to answer us correctly goes away. So how do we get quality work without overdoing them? So, yeah, it's a neat, neat game to be in, but it's one that we just have to be so open to actually learning to listen to that horse. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And in working with people and in your, your sector of the equine industry, do you find that 
Um, there's more and more people that are interested in, in that mindset and that philosophy that you're talking about. There is. The higher-level riders, we get quite a few World Cup horses that come for body work because they do understand the difference that it makes to their horse in the ring. But then also worldwide, there's people that they just score through it. They make the horse work through it. And I don't know, my horses probably have too much of a spark. They've got a lot of character. I don't squash any of it. I want my horses to make their kings and queens. I want them to feel like they're invincible so that when they go in that ring, that fight to win or that fight to support you is there. Um, so we're really big on developing horses rather than squashing a horse for the wrong answer. I ask my break-ins a question. I ask my Grand Prix horses the same question. I just don't expect the same level of answer from the babies as I do my good horses. But I expect them from the start to also be able to problem solve. So we teach everything to problem solve. And it's we built an obstacle course before we built an arena. Yeah. I haven't exactly. had an arena for years on this property. I chose to build an obstacle course and, and we call it the life training course. Once it can solve one problem, one obstacle, whether it's a flat bridge, it's a tire mountain, it's a tipping bridge, whatever that obstacle is, his ability to problem solve and learn and understand that next obstacle happens quicker and quicker. And that's crossing a river, it's crossing a bridge, it's walking past the flag, it's going to its first competition. So we're trying to set these horses up for life with life skills that they're never going to forget. Exactly, exactly. So I've got a couple of quick questions for you. What, what would you consider your biggest achievement up to this point? There's lots of things. To me personally, it would be Argo, uh, the wild stallion I got out of the Kaimanawa Rangers uh, for the TV series. Uh, unbelievable brain. I thought it was the biggest goofball I think I'd ever met in the yards. There was no brain. It was dumb and slow and weird. But then what I could teach that horse, I did a four-hour um wild horse muster on it in the far north sand dunes beach gallops chasing wild horses in the forestry bareback with no bridle no halter not a rope on it and for yep and what that horse learned and what that horse gave me he would lie down with a hundred kids on it he'd get up he'd go down for a photo he'd put a kid on it he'd Get, that kid would get a photo, he would hop back down, swap kids, and he'd do it a hundred times. And that horse never complained. And even when he'd be like, No, I don't really want to, he'd be like, Okay, I got this. Um, what you can train a horse to do if you're there for them and you listen to them and you're doing right by them is unbelievable. And yes, I've won road to the horse twice, I've won big, I've won a world cup, I've won big competitions. To me, it was Argo. Um, unbelievable horse what i learned from him and yeah i never forget that horse he did a huge amount for me that's cool that's pretty neat too um i remember that horse and yeah i remember you saying even at that time you know how how cool he was and and some of the stuff that you're you're doing with him when he hadn't been out of the wild for you know but just several months so that's pretty cool what do you do? How do you ensure that you sort of stay on the top of your game? It sounds like, you know, and I'm the same. I like learning and I feel like we're never going to quit as long as we uh, are hungry to learn. It seems like the more that I learn, the more I find out I don't know. So what yeah. do you do to um, sort of, you know, keep that study going or learning from from other masters or, or people that are specialists or, or experts in their field? How do you sort of do that with some intention? Most of what I do is, to me, I have to credit the horse the whole way through. I've had some amazing mentors and some amazing support, but I've never been one just to, to stick to a trainer and go, okay, this is what works. And to me, that's method. Um, so I've always been very open to everything. I watch things, I listen, I ask questions, but the horse has taught me the most, uh, particularly me, the body work is huge with horses. I believe horses are, are very misunderstood because they have so much going on in their bodies. Is it ulcers? Is it kissing spine? Is it thrush in the hoof? 
bad balance in the feet? Has it got a wolf tooth? What's going on in that particular horse that's preventing it from giving us the results? So right now, the last couple of years uh, has been about educating people to understand. So you were saying um, about continuing continuing education, basically, and obviously not getting stuck necessarily with a particular person or approach or method, but um, how you sort of do that with intention, um, ensuring that you do stay on the top of your game or you, or you are always learning, always advancing your skills. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Here, here at our base here in Hawke's Bay, I do all the shoeing and all the trimming myself. We do all the body work, all the breeding. We start our own horses. We finish our own horses in the competition ring. So we're part of the entire process. So how do we set up the foals from birth for success? How do we look after their feet and their bodies, their mental well-being, so that we get the results at the end of the day? And to me, there is no better trainer than the horse. Are we prepared to listen to it? Are we prepared to actually step back and go, what we're doing isn't working? Uh, being tough on it, drilling it, the draw reins, the side reins, the, the spurs, the whips, making it do something it doesn't want to do. Are we actually prepared to step back and go, we're doing something wrong? And that's incredibly hard for somebody to admit. And I'm the first to admit, even to this day, I'm not perfect. We make mistakes still here. Uh, we get things wrong, we come back from a ride, and yes, we were a little bit tough on it, we put a little bit strong in our ride, a little bit of leg, we made it work through something, and we come back and I could have just fixed its body and we wouldn't have had those issues. But at the same time, I know I, I turn up to work with a dislocated shoulder, I'll turn up with a sore hip or a sore lower back, and I do expect my horses to turn up too on that same day and still turn up with a good attitude they, they can say, hey, I'm not feeling 100% today and I have to be prepared to listen to that. But I still expect them to say, okay, they can do it nicely. They don't have to buck or kick or be mean. There is a nice way of doing everything. The reason horses don't speak nicely to us is because we don't listen. The very first time it moved away from us when we walked towards it with a saddle or it put one ear back when we girthed it, when it dropped a back leg when the farrier was showing it because it physically couldn't pick that back leg up. Those were th little things the horse was telling us. And if we don't listen to those little things, they become big issues. Absolutely. And so I think, I think to us, we have to be the first ones to start to admit that we're not perfect, that we get it wrong. And are we actually prepared to step back and say, hey, what we're doing isn't working? If we keep doing the same thing, we're not going to get anywhere, no matter how hard we push or how hard we make something happen. And are we prepared to actually step back and listen? And that's a hard thing for somebody to admit, that we're not perfect, we're not right. Um, and sometimes we've got to prove a point, don't we? That we have to, <laughs> have to it has to work. Um, so sometimes stepping back and going, what we're doing, riding six, day, six days a week in the arena, drilling it for an hour when it's already a shut down horse when it already hates its life it's already going around with its ears back we've strapped its nose shut with a drop nose band we're hassling it with a whip because it doesn't want to go forward it doesn't want to do its work that's when we need to be stepped back we've gone past listening we've gone we're going to have to start at the beginning so yeah it's a very hard thing for a human to admit that they're wrong but i think it's also the most important that these horses do speak we just have to listen yeah that yeah that's absolutely right absolutely right do you find um the the approach or the focus on the horsemanship and, and the well-being of the horse say with the show jumping and the and the riders that you've coached over the years or or um are working with those horses those situations is there an openness uh, or an increasing openness with, with those folks to, to do like what you're saying, take a step back and say, look, we're not ready for competition or how do I break this down to, you know, rebuild this horse so that there's understanding and trust so he can go out and do this job? Uh, is, there, is there more and more openness to that, say, than when you were a kid or, or uh, whatever? It's improving in some ways. You, you go to the top in the world. You go to the top Olympic athletes. They treat their horses like athletes. 
They have chiros, they have physios, they have water pools, spas. They look after those horses in their health and their physical and mental well-being as well as they can. And to me, that's the best the horse can, they're on good footing, they're trained well, they're looked after by the best in the business. The ones in the middle get stuck a little bit and then the ones at the very bottom, their their owners genuinely love them and they mean very well by them. And it's it's a real tough one because how do we go, everyone's desperate to be in a ring and win, right? And when and this day and age, it's almost a little bit worse because everyone, there's arenas everywhere. Your neighbor's got an arena, three kilometers down the road, there's another arena. So everyone can now afford an arena or they mortgage the house to put one in because it's that important to them. Whereas when I learned to ride, we had no arena. We rode in the paddocks, we rode on the hills, we had fun with our horses because an arena wasn't an option. And I think the horses appreciated it a lot more than they do now. More people have arenas than don't have arenas. And it's quite amazing. And because they've got that arena, they then have to spend time in that arena. Yeah, yeah. But and, that's and tough on a horse. It, it is, it is. And there's a lot of reasons for that, whether, you know, whether that's what they want to do or, or their lack confidence to go out in the hills or down to the river yeah. or, or don't have that you know, available readily where they're at, you know, there's a lot of different uh, reasons that that might be the case, but I completely agree. I think most horses are going to get a little soured about that or shut down or on the flip side, uh, explosive or, or, you know, naughty quote unquote. The explosive and naughty ones come because they are locked in the classroom all the time. So all of a sudden we take them to the zoo or a fun outing they're, they, it's no different than kids that run off to see the gorilla because it's so exciting. They stop listening to the teacher. So the horses switch off going, oh, my goodness, open space, other horses, fun, exciting. And so all the naughtiness comes out. So to me, if my horses are educated at the zoo or they're educated at the beach and the fun places, the moment we go to a classroom, they're like, okay, I've got this. Um, so to me, it's very important that our horses, yes, they spend time in a classroom. But a classroom can be outside. It's about education, but all horses must have time in the playground. And two, people too. People have to have fun. So if you're not enjoying your riding, something's wrong. Right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. What uh, what is one thing about horses that you wish you would have known ten years ago? Saw horses. There's a lot of problem horses back then that I had that we we helped and we got going really well but if I'd known what I don't know now about sore horses and the ability to help them the results with those horses would have been completely different not being able to pick up a cantilead kicking out um struggling to put on top line contact issues yes you can help a horse go as well as it can without fixing those things but by fixing those things you just jump 10 feet straight away and you're so much further ahead so like now the horses so many horses that I wished I could have helped differently and I'm still learning I'm still educating myself still open to how do I do it right I've jumped into race horses because can I give them a quality of life um I don't know I love what I do and I don't believe I'll ever stop learning absolutely so with that, I've got one more question, and then we can um, we can wrap up, and and of course we'll have you let everybody know where they can find out more about you and what what you do. But uh, what would be what would you think that your legacy is? What are you what are you working on? What's the big picture? Education, helping people to understand what does the horse actually need to be successful in this world, and it is the horse underneath us is the athlete. We do very little or we should be doing very little. <laughs> we shouldn't have to be kicking and hassling horses or pulling on their heads. We should be able to communicate so well with these horses that these horses are light and fun and easy to ride. And so it's about education. Are we mentally looking after these horses well? Are we physically looking after the body and the demands that we ask of the sport that we have the horse in? And so physically, mentally, emotionally, these horses, there's so much to horses that we don't know, we don't understand enough. And I think some of the top riders in the world are starting to get that. Like you look at 
the guy that won the Olympic show jumping. He was barefoot. He rides his horse at home in a halter bareback to and from its paddock. So there's lots of people that get it in this competition world. And it's no different than reining or dressage. Whatever discipline we do, the welfare of the horse has to come first. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. So where can people track you down? Website, Facebook, other social media? Yeah, web, websites, vickywilson.nz and uh, Facebook, vickywilson.nz again. And same with Instagram, we're on there as well. And um, Or vickywilson.nz uh, for email. So we do a lot. It's problem horses, it's breeding, it's competition, it's starting horses. Body work's probably my favourite out of all of it. Uh, and the shoeing. I love shoeing. Probably shouldn't. <laughs> um, but <laughs> trimming and shoeing. Uh, to me, the entire horse has to be in balance. So we look at every aspect of the horse. No point doing a really good riding job if my foot balance is not correct or my horse is sore. Or, yes, I can trim really well, but I can't ride it how the horse needs to be ridden. So to me... I need to know everything I can about these horses to do well by them. Basically, so it's about educating yourself to help the horse. That's right. Yeah. Hol holistic approach where you can um, have, have some knowledge and, and skills around just about any area there. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Not yeah. trusting our profession. We need to have a, enough understanding to be able to question things. Why isn't that working? That's awesome. Well, I sure appreciate you taking some time today, Vicky, to catch up with me. I know you're, you're real busy, especially with your little one as well. So, um, yeah, you. big thank you. And I know everybody will enjoy hearing, hearing your story. Super. Thank you very much. Well, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Life in the Saddle podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share and leave a five-star rating or review. Remember, you can find us on social media or our website, truewesthorsemanship.com.